Hello and welcome to today's debate presented by Nokia. Thank you so much for joining us. Today we will be looking at the European Commission's SEP proposal standard essential patents and asking whether it's going to jeopardize Europe's competitiveness, how Europe's technology leaders need to react to it and what the outlook is for the future. As we all know, innovation is absolutely key to driving the European economy forward. It's part of the powerhouse that we rely on. And SEPs incentivize those innovators to continue to build those best technologies. And they create a virtuous cycle through R&D investment, patenting, licensing, and all those essential ingredients that we need to make the future of Europe digital. Now, on the 27th of April, so not so long ago, the European Commission proposed a new regulatory framework for SEPs, which could radically alter the landscape. We're going to talk about that. We're going to hear the views from the experts. Today, we will start with a couple of opening statements to really help us set the scene before moving into a discussion with our panelists. Those of you joining online, you can put your questions to the panelists in the box on your screen. Please do indicate who they're for, if they're for a specific panelist. For you in the room, you can also join in digitally, scan that QR code, or you can go to slido.com and use the hashtag techleadership uh, on your smartphones if you want to send questions as well. We look forward to hearing from all of you. But to kick things off, I am pleased to welcome our first speaker today, the Head of Automotive and Mobility Solutions, Uwe Pütschler. Please, sir, the floor is yours. We have today approximately 270 million connected cars on our roads. That's an amazing number already, uh, a, a big number. And we see today that most of the new vehicles are connected, so this is now a common capability of most of the vehicles. At the same time, a lot of things are happening in, in that segment. And I need to introduce maybe two technology-specific uh, topics. Vehicles are connected in two ways. One is via the network, and that's what we see today in, in all of those new vehicles. And the other one, is a so-called direct communication, which connects two vehicles, vehicle to vehicle. And uh, that is something which is still to come to a larger extent. And today, most of those connected vehicles, they use the connectivity for several things. One is to support safety. The other one, to improve efficiency of traffic. And the, and the third one is, of course, improving comfort. And comfort is always a value for car manufacturers. That is clear. Now, what's, what's happening around the world? Three weeks ago, the Department of Transportation in the US launched a V2X deployment plan. It's still a draft. But they basically outlined a plan how to stimulate and uh, introduce V2X, vehicle to X communications, into the United States. And they have come up with uh, three phases until 2034, and still a draft, but with very clear KPIs. 
So they want to clearly see what is going to happen until 2026, and then uh, later second phase and third phase. And they are talking about how many vehicles, how many roads are going to support that, how many intersections are going to support that. So clear objectives and KPIs. Similar activities in China. And uh, there's also a new plan being discussed at the moment to speed up the deployment of the technology. Now you may ask, and what's happening in Europe? And before I go into Europe, I should say that both regions, China and the US, they, they picked 3GPP technology as the main technology for connectivity in vehicles. So, and they, they picked the fourth generation, so LTE for the direct communication, and then 4G or 5G for the network connect connectivity of the vehicles. Now, Europe decided to go a more sophisticated or more advanced way. And in July, the French Automotive Association came up with a statement and a position paper saying France, the car manufacturers, and also the suppliers to the car manufacturers, they will go for 5G V2X. And 5G V2X means for both, for the network connectivity as well as for the direct communications between the vehicles. And a few months later, in September, then 5G Automotive Association came up with a similar position paper saying the same thing on behalf of most of the European car manufacturers in 5G AA. And the remarkable thing was that also Volkswagen was part of that announcement. And for those who are a bit closer to the technology, they know that Volkswagen currently deploy a non-free GPP technology. But they made a decision for the future. Uh, Volkswagen will also be part of that European intention to go for 5G V2X. And that is a remarkable thing. And I would like to quote two sentences from this French position paper, which reflects a bit the expectations of the automotive industry and also what the technology can deliver and, and provide. So what they said is they are confident that 5G V2X provides a future-proof techno technical solution that fulfills today's V2X services requirements and that 5G V2X will evolve as appropriate to fulfill those of future cooperative driving services. So there's a clear expectation from the automotive industry that the technology will evolve and the technology will go with the growing requirements of the automotive industry. And they also refer to the history saying, okay, in the past we have seen that 3GPP technology has really been part of a big innovation process and it has shown that it can innovate. And that, that is very important, obviously, also for the automotive industry going forward. So if we summarize what is going on here in the automotive industry, there is a clear trend that 3GPP technology, so the mobile technology, is the technology of choice for the connectivity in the, in the vehicles. And the expectations are high, but the technology has also shown that it can deliver expectations. 
Now a last point, which is related to it, and it also shows how the, the technology evolves into new domains, if you like. And that is, you may have heard this, satellite communication. The automotive industry knows that mobile networks will not cover everything in the world to 100%. That's unrealistic today to expect this is 100%. But as one of the common manufacturers said, no connection is not an option. So they want the, the vehicles to be connected all the time and everywhere. And that is, as I said at the beginning, it's to improve safety, it is also to improve comfort. So value, value to, to the car and value to the user of the car. And it's, it's interesting now to see that the automotive industry again said it has to be in line with our technology choice. And our technology is 3GPP technology. So the automotive industry expects that even the satellite connectivity will be standardized in a well-fashioned uh, approach so that they have an optimal cost position for, for the technology in the vehicle. And obviously, they benefit from the permanent evolution of the basic technology. So there's clear, clear expectation that it should go together with what they have today and step by step it should be increased and extended to new modes of, of communication and satellite is one of them. So that hopefully has given you a bit of a feeling of where we are today. If I summarize it, connectivity is now part of an automotive industry. It is now an essential element of all the new cars coming out and the chosen technology is also expected to go with the future innovation. And that uh, is the main requirement for this particular part of the four segments, which I mentioned at, at the beginning. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Um, Thank you, Uwe. Um, we're going to hear now as well from uh, Volkert Tjernstra. So, Volkert, we're going to ask you to uh, give us your thoughts. Um, well, first of all, thank you for inviting me to this uh, wonderful event and to present the Yarto's position uh, on the draft uh, SEP regulation. Uh, today, I speak to you on behalf of Yarto as co-chair of the Yarto's legal working group. Now, IARTO may need some introduction to some of you. IARTO is the European Association of Research and Technology Organizations. Um, so we are a Brussels-based umbrella organization uh, for about 350 uh, European RTOs, so applied research and technology organizations. We're talking about the likes of Fraunhofer Gesellschaft in Germany, um, CEA in France, Technalia in Spain, and TNO in the Netherlands. Um, so, what do we do? Well, our organizations basically take up the results of basic research as mainly performed at the academia. Um, 
those results are usually at a very low TRL level, so not directly usable by industry. So what we do is we take up the results of that type of research, we try to elevate that to typically uh, TRL level, technology readiness level six or seven, so that is a prototype proof of concept, and then we try to engage industry. Um, so our work um, is to some extent funded with public financial means, that is the taxpayers' money. Um, and we are funded in this way as there is a clear market failure in overcoming this funding gap. Uh, universities usually don't have the financial means to, to elevate their results into TRL level 6 or 7, and usually industry is not interested in taking up the results at TRL level 1 or 2 uh, and developing that uh, until it gets usable for them. So that is our task in the innovation ecosystem. Um, whenever we reach that results on TRL level 6 or 7, uh, we try then to license it out to industry against fees that are uh, proportional to the amount of usage by industry. So in this way, we redistribute the, the research costs, the development costs of all downstream users. And then all proceeds are reinvested back into further applied research. And we are not-for-profit entities, so we don't distribute anything to shareholders. We reinvest everything into the research. Now, you may ask why IARTO takes an interest in this whole debate. Um, should this not better be left to the Nokias and the Ericsons of this world? Well, the answer is both yes and no. When looking at the SAP landscape in telecoms, of course it's clear that the RTOs are not active in the same way um, and having the same intensity as industry. We don't, but still we do. We are active in standardization, we are active in developing SEPs, we are active in licensing out SEPs. For instance, a recent survey by IPLytics in Germany showed that um, Fraunhofer Gesellschaft currently holds place number, I think it's 33, in the global uh, 5G race. So we do, our members do play a role in SEP development. Um, but I think there's a second and even more important reason for our involvement in this, in this debate. Um, as said earlier, the RTOs are more or less the linking pin between research and the needs of industry and SMEs. Um, and that explains why the European RTOs have taken a keen interest in uh, upkeeping a sound innovation ecosystem. And of course, that all also involves um, a working technology marketplace in Europe. Now, our members have expressed their concern of this draft SAP regulation in its present format. Concerns as to the procedure that has led to the present draft, but also to the apparent imbalance that we see in the proposal. An imbalance that comes to the detriment of the licensors of SAPs, and often those licensors, often the entities that develop technology. Note, there's quite a lot at stake here. Mobile cellular telephony has been, and I think still is, a huge success for the European industry. From the early days of the Nordic mobile telephony system, quite some years ago, Europe has played a key role in the development of mobile telecoms. And any measures that could be detrimental 
to that success should be taken with great care. In the Art Opposition paper, we have identified five main reasons why this draft regulation should not be adopted in its present form. I will not go over them in great detail, as I guess the panel will address all those things in some more detail. But the main points are the ARTO members think that the present proposal is not proportional. It's far-reaching, it's overreaching its stated objectives. We also feel it's counterproductive, as the proposed regulation will probably disrupt the global processes for technology transfer, as we now have it. It will increase costs. It's also unbalanced, and what a lot of YARTO members feel, it's in contradiction with other EU policies and regulations. And finally, there is the issue of global competitiveness. The approach, the approach now chosen by the European Commission would amount to territorial overreach and would probably trigger similar measures by other jurisdictions as well as probably would be contrary to some elements of the TRIPS agreement. Um, thank you and please visit us at www.iarto.eu. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Volkert, and uh, we'll remind people in the chat as well where they can find you online. We turn now to our panel discussion, and I am delighted to have joining with me Eustace Baron, Senior Research Associate at Northwestern University, and I know you've done some work alongside DG Grow as well. Yata Toro is Head of IP at IQM Quantum Computers. Sonia London is the General Counsel and Licensing Executive at Tactotech. Chris Hannan, who joins us remotely, is Senior Patent Attorney in the Office of Policy and International Affairs at the USPTO. And thank you very much, Chris. We know it's a, an early start for you. And last, but by no means least, Colette Ronsley is Head of IP Policy and Advocacy at Nokia. Let's, uh, let's have a, a first opening uh, discussion. Eustace, I'll start with you. So, as I mentioned, the European Commission engaged you, as well as other academics, um, to explore whether or not the SEP licensing markets were so broken that they justified a regulatory intervention. What was your findings? Tell us a bit about that work. Sure. Thank you very much. <clears throat> so I can talk a little bit about the findings and conclusions of the study that we produced for the Commission and offer a little bit of my own personal take on that, So, if, if you don't mind. So, the Commission has basically asked us to produce an empirical assessment of potential problems in SAP licensing. And that was, in discussion with the Commission, we, uh, we divided that in problems, and then the causes and the consequences of these problems. And the problems were very much focused on the efficiency of SAP licensing. So it was really about how much money is spent in the process of reaching a deal, how long does it take to reach these deals. And the causes for potential inefficiencies in that process were mostly in the realm of intransparency, both with respect to what patents exist that are potentially essential to a standard, but also with respect to what are the rates at which these patents are currently being licensed. <coughs> and the consequences or potential consequences of these problems 
that we were uh, charged with uh, assessing were mainly two forms of opt-out. So one opt-out is the opt-out by implementers who decide not to use a standard because they're too concerned about the hassle of having to deal with SAP licensing. And the other potential form of opt-out would be innovators or potential innovators who decide not to contribute to standards development because they, they are concerned that they would be unable to get a return on that investment. So our, our assessment, we, we definitely um, find many of these uh, lack of transparency or uh, difficulties in assessing information about uh, essentiality. Uh, we also find that there's a lot of uh, time that elapses until stakeholders have full visibility of the terms at which SCPs are being licensed. Um, we, we do an effort, we make an effort at quantifying the cost of SCP licensing, at quantifying the average delay, average duration for these negotiations. So I'm not claiming that we have like the definitive and ultimate answer to these, but I think we have made some contribution to that. And then on the consequences, I think that this is uh, uh, probably the most debated part of the study where we, where we ultimately come to the conclusion that the evidence that we have seen at least is not conclusive with respect to whether there is really uh, the, the problems that we have assessed are significantly or sufficiently significant, sufficiently severe so as to cause this opt-out so that companies would decide not to participate in innovation and standards. So this is, this is the study. And then my own personal assessment is that looking at the evidence, uh, I, I would say that it warrants an incremental regulatory approach. I think that there are clear areas in which there are clearly identified problems which can be usefully addressed in regulation. At the same time, I think that it's not particularly plausible that these problems are so severe as to cause innovation to cease. And perhaps most importantly, I, I, I think that we see some encouraging trends, especially over the last few years, in the sense that some of these most salient indicators of licensing inefficiencies appear to be uh, on, on, on a trend of becoming less severe. In particular, the propensity of SAP licensing negotiations to result in litigation. And uh, so that, that for me, together with uh, increasing uh, availability of guidance on what FRAND terms are because of the building, building case law that we have, uh, leads me to think that we should focus on those areas where the problems are increasing, which is clearly the case for SCP transparency, but perhaps uh, be more prudent in, in areas where we, where we see that there is an encouraging trend already and where we don't necessarily have a very clear evidence base to say that uh, the current process is broken. And there are essentially four proposals. Um, can you talk us through those uh, briefly? and evidence that they will be effective? <laughs> well, so I, I think that for me, the, 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 most dif, uh, the most significant division is between two parts of the proposal. One is on transparency, in particular with respect to SEPs and their essentiality. And then the other is uh, on the resolution of disagreements on friend rates. So that includes aggregate royalty, that includes conciliation and uh, uh, so these, these are, for me, kind of the two main building blocks, in addition to these uh, more, uh, I would say, um, 
un uncontroversial elements of providing providing guidance into systems to SMEs and, and, and this kind of thing. So I, I think that there is a big difference in terms of the possibility of doing a, a thorough impact assessment of these two different things, just, just because of the availability of a factual basis for that. The commission in 2017, when they had the communication on SCPs, they, they were quite clear on where they saw the problems, and they emphasized a lot the problem of, uh, of essentiality transparency. And, and they had this very good idea of doing a pilot on that. And, and the pilot was carried out, and I think it was carried out very well. I think it has produced a very uh, uh, tangible, very, very transparent results that I, in my work uh, with the commission, was able to use to produce an impact assessment on essentiality. And I think you can disagree with the outcome of the pilot. You can disagree with my own study on that. You can disagree with the commission's impact assessment of that. But at least we have a very tangible, very clear basis on which to have these debates. With other, uh, uh, and in particular the aggregate royalty, I'm just concerned that it's very, very unclear what exactly is being proposed, how exactly that would work. So I think that what the commission has done on essentiality, they should also do on these other parts of the proposal. They should also like, be much more specific about the process, how it would work, and then maybe provide a test run of that and then we could debate an impact assessment of that particular proposal as well. Thank you. Um, Colette, looking at some of the criticism, one of the uh, criticisms has been that uh, placing the competence centre within the EU IPO isn't a great idea, they lack experience. There are other bodies like Etsy that might be better placed. Tell me a bit of your thinking on that. Um, what, what's, the, what's the idea? I mean, wh what would you like to see? <laughs> Gosh, there's an awful lot to unpack <laughs> in yep. that question, but perhaps to take it a step back and, and talk first about the EU IPO, and you mentioned that lack of experience with standard essential patents. Of course, you can build up competence in an area given sufficient time and resources to do that. But as regulation is proposed, there isn't that time and there isn't the resource. And talking about resources, Commissioner Breton, when he announced the proposal back in April, said that, you know, expertise in this area is rare and expensive and working in industry and in this area for, for quite some time now, I would have to agree with that. But more importantly, we need to be clear as to what the SEP proposal is looking to achieve. And to be honest, building up institutional knowledge within the EU IPO is, is, is not what's happening. It's not what is considered. Core elements of this proposal would be outsource the work on core elements. Everything from the essentiality checking that uh, Eustace was talking about, and the aggregate royalty and opinions on aggregate royalty and also the friend determination process. And so what are we actually building up there? There will no, be no institutional knowledge and that then has a knock-on effect for the EU IPO's ability to deal with other aspects like the register. You know, the idea of needing more transparency and having a register for standard essential patents sitting within the EU IPO comes from what I understand to be the Commission's frustration that the ETSI database isn't what it would like to 
see. But there are two things I want to mention about that. If you don't have the institutional expertise, then how is the, are you not replicating the problems within the EU IPO that the Commission has said exist in Etsy? And then there is this point about duplication. Etsy already has a database of declarations. And it's better suited, I would say, to coming up with a register that is fit for the purposes that this regulation would entail. It's really important not to have duplication of effort, of cost. Companies would still need to make declarations to Etsy and other SDOs. And so I really do think that that's important. And you know, there have been some very public statements from uh, the, the, the head of the EPO um, as to regulation not duplication, duplicating effort and costs. I think it's also important to note that despite the efforts and support from leading SCP holders, the Etsy database hasn't been improved because it's a consensus-driven organization. You need the membership to, um, to actually commit to that. But what we have seen is that when the commission takes a leadership role, such as it did in the standardization strategy, Etsy can and does make changes. So my question is, the Commission is in the room, it is involved in Etsy. So why hasn't it been taking the initiative there? Why is it now looking to bring in a new body, to bring in a new register with a duplicated effort, with additional costs and administrative burdens? I'm very concerned that that aspect of it has not been carefully considered. I think that the other aspect I would say is that in the EU IPO, registration and essentiality check costs will be covered by user fees, which will likely fall on large stakeholders like Nokia, but not implementers. And we've heard the talk about balance in the uh, presentations earlier. If it was done by SDOs in Etsy, say, it would fall within the general budget. The cost would be spread across the membership. That would be fair and that would be balanced. And then the other thing is the EU IPO has been selected because it's a, an EU institution. But it's also a regional body. And my concern is that when you're dealing with things on a regional basis, when we're dealing with global standards and standard essential patents that then license globally, we risk having fragmentation. And you know, we heard in the, in the introductory remarks uh, from Ayato that there is a real concern that we will end up with different things in different jurisdictions. That only adds to the cost and the burdens of the system. Um, and, you know, it's not that Nokia disagrees with the Commission's objectives. We believe there should be transparent and efficient licensing of standard essential patents. 
and there should be more predictability. But predictability doesn't just apply to implementers. It applies to those who are contributing to standards, innovators like Nokia. And we're making those decisions 10 years in advance. So now we're not talking about our 5G strategy so much as our 6G strategy. And you know, other branches of the commission are approaching us and wanting us to invest in our, uh, and commit to our 6G strategy. But there is so much that is uncertain in the regulation from its scope to, it, it, it's, then I'm very concerned about what this will do to the ability and incentives of companies to continue in this standardization process. Well, to pick up just on one of the elements that you listed, um, the essentiality checks, how likely are they to improve matters, improve licensing efficiency? So, Eustace, I, I obviously followed closely the pilot study. I've read your report. I've seen the recommendations. Nokia, too, is not opposed to essentiality checks per se, but we do wonder whether they are, what they are actually going to deliver in terms of concrete benefits. So when we're dealing with actual licensing, and I think that it's very interesting because this regulation is about SCP licensing, the only thing it doesn't really address is the licensing aspect. You know, if essentiality checks were really a block to SCP licensing, the barrier, then pools and platforms um, that offer licensing solutions would be an immediate and overnight success on launch. Because in order to comply with competition law, they're required to carry out essentiality checks. Um, it's not that that is causing the problems. Yes, essentiality is part of the licensing discussions. Licensing discussions have a technical part and a commercial part, but it's not that there is a lack of information that goes into those discussions. We often go in with claim charts, mapping things against the standard. I'm not sure that essentiality checking is going to be this um, kind of great thing that the Commission ha has said that it will. I'm not sure it's going to deliver licensing efficiency. And certainly, as is being proposed, there is scope for delay and potential scope for misuse and abuse. Because as well as the, the, the kind of sampling, there's this suggestion that not only could SEP holders select patents to check, but also implementers. That could lead to targeting. Uh, and I've got a concern about that. Well, I think we've, uh, we've set the stage a bit there with the regulations, the concerns, the, the big uh, flashpoints. Um, Yata, tell us a bit about your business, what you're working and what this means for you in, in, in practice. So um, I'm representing SME here. So we are founded in 2019 in, in Finland. Uh, I came quantum computers. Um, but we also have a strong presence in Europe. So we have offices in Munich, Paris and Madrid. And I wouldn't call us anymore a startup. It's more like a scale-up since we have 300 employees in our company. And uh, what we are doing as a business, we are building quantum computers based on superconducting technology. Um, so 
our customers, they can be universities, uh, research centers, different uh, verticals like finance, chemistry, automotive. All of those who have like uh, specific uh, problems that need uh, computational power, which current classical computers cannot uh, give. Uh, for this particular subject, uh, standardization is still in its infancy on quantum computing, since, it, since this is like a technology area which is just emerging. Um, but on a European Commission level, they have already identified this as one of the uh, four critical technologies in addition to AI, semiconductors and biotech. And um, obviously since um, with these kind of computers, you can use it either for the good of the humankind, like building new drugs or different kind of materials. There is also the other side, like where you can break encryption algorithms of, of um, uh, today. So it is a technology that has some geopolitical, um, let's say, uh, meaning. And uh, big, big um, countries like US and China are putting a lot of efforts in, in, uh, in this kind of technology. So it's of course important that Europe will also have uh, its say and have uh, like uh, sovereignty in, in this technology. But for the standardization, it's still uh, ongoing or starting, I would say. So there are no standards yet. There are certain uh, standardization organizations anyhow, like uh, IEEE, ISO, Shenzhenelec, Etsy, who have working groups and, and our companies also actively, um, let's say, participating there. We are members there. And um, this kind of um, regulation that will now be here, like a, as a draft still, of course, it is something that we need to consider whether it actually motivates, motivates us uh, to participate there in the first place. And um, since I brought this geopolitical game here, I could mention that in China, for example, there is already governmental support um, for Chinese to actually participate in, in standardization of um, uh, technologies like quantum computing, at least that is mentioned in one of their um, national um, standardization development programs. So um, as you may know that in other countries, this kind of standardization is kind of based on volunteerism, then I'm not convinced that this kind of legislation or regulation would kind of uh, promote European or other um, uh, companies to uh, put their efforts in, in standardization. And from an innovation point of view, do you feel the new regulation is helpful? Is it because this is the, the Commission's argument that this will actually stimulate you to be more innovative? Well, um, as a company who has all, already kind of, this is one of our strategies to kind of long term strategy to put investments on, on um, standardization so that we can actually occupy the side position in this quantum value chain and contribute our um, innovations to the standards to drive the market technology selections. And we have already around 100 patent families. Not that those are SEPs because the standardization is still start, uh, starting. Um, of course, um, uh, we don't feel that uh, this regulation would uh, kind of motivate us to continue with the standardization efforts. 
Sonia, um, I see from your reaction that you probably have some strong feelings, but tell us a bit about Tactotech and, and what your feelings are on the regulation. Okay, a couple of points here. Um, so first of all, um, of Tactotech. Tactotech is a Finnish SME. Uh, this is a spin-out from uh, Finnish uh, Research Institute, VTT, which I believe is, is part of the European uh, chain of, of research organizations, uh, established uh, 2011. Uh, we're technology developer and licensor in the field of smart surfaces and illumination solutions. Um, we do this... Um, uh, uh, this technology to uh, enable incorporating electronic components in 3D plastics. And uh, this is uh, especially done in industrial, automotive, aviation and consumer electronics uh, solutions. This technology um, will provide more sustainable solution um, for, for electronics, uh, kind of with the simplified assembly, uh, decreased use of materials and, and being lighter space uh, saving um, uh, parts that, that use electronics. So technology developer and licensor and uh, um, we're looking at this from, from SME who might be licensing at some point. But um, in electronics um, field, uh, standards have been there since 90s something. Of course, electronics has gone forward from 90s also. So the technology is developing and, and many of the standard setting organizations are now updating their standards. Uh, in electronics, um, the developments are now mainly in material testing and kind of uh, making that uniform. So, but I, I think that in that area, um, there will be more standardization uh, coming up. I think that the real opportunity, especially from European perspective and SME's perspective, would be in the environmental technologies, recycling, material handling and so on, uh, so that um, these kind of technologies, uh, when standardized, would actually offer a huge opportunity for SMEs to participate uh, with their products and, and, and services. So I would think that I, I hope that Europe will be forerunner uh, to enable these kind of technologies and, and the leadership of, of Europe um, in, in, in the environmental technologies especially. Um, if I may continue just a little bit. Um, with regard to this um, proposal, I would even think that it's a little bit, you could even say value destroying from the uh, SME perspective uh, because it proposes burdens, it proposes technology risk increase and uh, destroying value of the, of the IP portfolios that, that SMEs have, especially if they are trying to license. So uh, we've heard that there are costs associated and obviously, I've, I've heard that, that there would be reduction of, of prices of registrations and so on for SMEs, but I haven't still uh, seen uh, how much and what would this be. So it's kind of a vague, it's, it's not promising nothing at, at, at this point. Um, burdensome, licensing is burdensome. Uh, SAP licensing uh, requires uh, skill sets and teams in place that uh, may be uh, hard to get for SMEs in the first place. And this doesn't really uh, get any easier with the, with the proposal. Some people might say that uh, doubling the registrations and, and having uh, two registers would double the transparency. I believe not. And, and um, 
uh, for us, it seems that from SME perspective, you would need to work out with uh, two different register, uh, registers. So it uh, doesn't seem like very effective or, or, or helpful. Um, I understand that SMEs would need to use external resources in their licensing um, um, to understand the declarations, contributions of, of others, and so on. Uh, and this is, of course, anticipated transaction cost. But uh, I don't see the um, proposal really decreasing these, but, but adding to them so that uh, there would be just one more instance more to deal with and to go to and to pay to. And that doesn't sound like an appealing case to me. A um, couple of points. Um, if we think of the aggregate royalty burden, the fear of the SMEs is that your contribution will become just noise because the bigger contributors um, will be um, assessed and, and taken into account. But if you are having the top-down patent counting approach uh, for, for um, aggregate royalty uh, determination, that is a real threat for smaller companies and that is the value-destroying part of the proposal. Uh, that um, you don't um, make the valuation based on the technology value, but you are just counting patents. Like slice of a pie approach does not work for SMEs who uh, typically have a little bit smaller portfolios of patents than the big players in the field. So as SME licensors, what would really benefit us would be to have incentives for the licensees to actually take a license. That would be... Uh, efficient and transparent if this would take place would be very easy and if there would be a negotiation process that would be fast and short and wouldn't take so much resources to com complete that would be an incentive for us to, uh, to, to make better business out of that and, and also use the standardized technologies more. Thank you. Um, Chris, you've been very patiently waiting, um, as we've set out, some of the issues we see here in Brussels with the EU proposals, the European Commission regulation proposals, and the potential impact on businesses. The US has taken a rather different approach. Um, I, I know it was uh, just last year, in, in 2022, that the, the US Department of Justice, the uh, National Institute of Standards, and the US Patent and Trademark Office put forward a, a rather a different approach uh, to going rather in the other direction. Can you tell us a bit about that, why the US has, has taken that approach? Yes, uh, absolutely. And uh, thank you for inviting me to be here today. I apologize that I'm not able to be there with you all. Um, but maybe just I'll start out with some background. I think it's it, at times lost on folks how the patent office gets involved necessarily in standards, right? When we have a, a sister agency in the Department of Commerce, that is the National Institute of Standards and Technology with standards in their name. So basically, in, in case anyone is not familiar, the USPTO is the agency responsible for timely issuing patents and trademarks here in the United States. But perhaps less well known is we are also the agency that is statutorily mandated to advise the administration through our Secretary of Commerce on matters pertaining to national and international IP policy issues. So of course, standard essential patent policy issues creep into there. Um, so we have actually been tracking the, the European Union's uh, SEP proposal with great interest. Um, in addition, we've actually unveiled, uh, going beyond our, our um, policy statements that was referenced, uh, we've actually been rolling out our own U.S. government national standard strategy for critical emerging technology. 
that was actually unveiled this past May. Um, and, and to this end, we've been working with NIST and, and colleagues across the Department of Commerce and, and government for that matter, as well as the International Trade Administration within the Department of Commerce. And we've been holding a number of listening sessions and we've been conversing with stakeholders. And actually we held one particular listening session uh, this past September that's specifically focused in on standards and in the intersection with IP. And so unsurprisingly, the European Union's SCP proposal was a, a very frequently raised topic at that in-person discussion. So related to our listening session, we actually asked questions as well um, to the public generally. We put, we put forth 12 questions that sort of spread spread a range of issues across um, to how standards are impacted by foreign policies in the U.S. So how do foreign policies impact U.S. firms that want to get involved with standard setting internationally? And that goes to with special emphasis on small and medium enterprises is are there barriers that really prevent them from going forward and, and wanting to uh, participate in international standard setting? And so in those question responses, again, we've seen an, a number of times that the EU SEP proposal has been raised, <coughs> pardon me, um, both in support and in opposition to it. And so we have about, uh, you know, 600 plus pages of materials that were provided to us from various groups of stakeholders. And so we're continuing to conclude our review of those voluminous submissions uh, to sort of understand how we can best implement our own strategy. But I think going to the point about these uh, remedy statements, as was mentioned in, in June of uh, 2022, we actually had withdrawn uh, from the this back and forth ping ponging statement uh, about remedies as they're applicable to standard essential patents. And so um, just a, a bit of history on that, starting back in 2013, the, the US PTO, along with the Department of Justice Antitrust Division, issued a statement that effectively opined on the, the merit of uh, injunctive relief, both in district court proceedings, as well as the International Trade Commission, which is a, a body that can only award exclusionary remedies. So in exclusion orders in that case, no, no financial uh, monetary uh, awards are, are based out of the ITC. So the 2013 policy statement sought to sort of give some guideposts to those administrative regulators, district court judges that read the statement to sort of indicate that a FRAN commitment effectively should be leading in most cases to the award of monetary relief and, and not injunctive relief. And so there had been some intervening case law since 2013. So come 2019, the, the 2013 statement was um, sort of pulled back and a new statement was put forth to sort of illustrate that the executive branch, that is the Department of Commerce, uh, Department of Justice as well, along with the, um, the National Institute of Standards Technology, newly added as a, as a third signatory here in 2019. And those, those three agencies put forth a statement to say, largely, it, they can be read harmoniously, I believe, 2013 and 2019, but this 2019 statement specifically said, look, we've had intervening case law. We think that the courts, district, you know, uh, judges, district court judges, as well as uh, our ITC administrative judges, they are all capable of assessing the cases that come before them. They're capable of allocating justice as it as matters by the, the facts presented to them. And so the 2019 statement effectively says, let let the you know administrative tribunals and, and Article Three courts do their job, and so 
that was came with some accompanying uh, statements in that that document, which I think uh, some some were uncomfortable with, and uh, much was written about those statements. And so I think what came of that was when the uh, new administration, the the Biden administration, came in, there was a push um, to sort of reallocate re that statement in a different uh, lens. And so we actually had a draft statement that came out um, in the intervening period well, as the Biden administration uh, political appointees were being put in place. Um, ultimately, that draft statement didn't go anywhere, but it did sort of uh, address a new facet in this, this uh, SEP licensing world, that is the, the sort of licensing negotiations and, and the manner in which they should proceed. So Harkening uh, back to the Huawei ZTE framework, you could say just to to sketch out some licensing guidelines if there are SMEs that are new to this field, and and so that was sort of a new addition in that draft twenty one statement. Ultimately, though, that that draft statement never took um, official effect. Instead, when the political appointees came on uh, across the, those those three signatories of NIST, PTO, and and the antitrust division at DOJ, the political officials decided that the best approach for the US government would be to simply withdraw from those statements. And part of our thinking was to make sure that if there are foreign bodies looking at this or, or stakeholders that are, are reading it and sort of interpreting it and, and taking it to mean a certain thing by removing that, uh, that ability to comment on that, those types of statements that you've completely eliminated that impact. And so by not having a statement, it sort of stands for that proposition that the executive branch agencies believe and, and have full confidence in our uh, tribunals that they're able to adjudicate these disputes when they come before them. So I think the, the lesson that we've learned from that is that we urge all regulators to do the same and in implementing any proposal, especially those that have a global impact. And I think given the the international implications when we think about SCP licensing, we would recommend allowing for ample discussion and, and proceeding cautiously, especially as the EU looks at this important endeavor. Well, thank you, Chris. As a follow-up, um, Colette alluded to it, but how concerned are you about, if you like, regional fragmentation? Is that something that bothers you? Well, I, th I think regional fragmentation is a, a real concern. I think we at the USPTO, we've been involved in uh, some treaties in the Hague Conference, for example, where I can recall that this, the, the, so the, the treaty under um, negotiation was the recognition and enforcement of foreign judgments. And at the time, the, the issue of SCPs actually came up. I can remember it quite well. And that, that notion of if you did have some issue locally for a particular uh, set portfolio, how does that impact you know, forum shopping, right? So if you have uh, the best available jurisdictions that are out there, everyone is then incentivized to go and run to the courthouse and, and lodge their dispute in the first instance as quickly as possible. So I think that the possibility then you have uh, parallel proceedings in, in global jurisdictions with competing rates, I think that is a concern. If I'm a stakeholder, I think I would be concerned by that in that you now maybe don't know how to best comply with these, these judgments that come out of courts around the world. So I think that could be a, a real practical consideration that as folks think about this, they're gonna need to consider the impact that those, those regional fragmentation effects could have. Well, thank you, Chris, that's clear. Um, 
Colette, a couple of questions just have come in from our, our audience for you, so I'll put them to you quickly to, to briefly deal with. Uh, Jean-Marie from the Fair Standards Alliance uh, says, if Nokia agrees with the objectives of the Commission proposal, what are your specific recommendations to bring more transparency, predictability and fairness to the licensing system? Uh, Rory O'Neill is asking, uh, there has been a lot of focus on the EU IPO, but would Nokia support independent fan determination and expanded register and essentiality tracks if they were administered by somebody else, another body? So starting with the objectives, we very much agree with the objectives. And in terms of transparency, I think this whole um, initiative has been kind of touted as being all about transparency. Actually, and I'm sure Eustace, you will come on to this later, but a lot of this is not about transparency. If you think about the aggregate royalty cap proposal, that's about price setting. It's not about transparency. Likewise, the FRAN determination is um, not about transparency either. And there are things to, to talk about around that. I, I, I think that uh, we support the initiative, we support <coughs> the um, objectives. We don't see what is being proposed as being aligned with those objectives, proportionate to those objectives, or necessarily even delivering any of them. Um, so, so that's the concern we have. Um, in terms of the EU IPO, as I said, it's not a question of the venue so much as the EU IPO having resources, whatever, but there is this whole duplication of effort. Um, there is the question as to, again, whether this is efficient, whether it is actually incurring costs with no commensurate benefits. Um, and I was interested to hear what Sonia was saying about her, her concerns as an SME because we've been looking at the, the kind of figures that the Commission put out there in terms of benefits that would be delivered. But then we look internally at you know, the potential costs of complying with this regulation, even as a, a larger company. Uh, and, and we're not sure that there's the balance there. So. Uh, Yata, let me come to you because it's a related question um, because we're talking about uh, trying to increase transparency and obviously the Commission has proposed the, the register and essentiality checks, but uh, do you see easier or less burdensome ways that this increased transparency could be provided? Yes, I think this has been discussed somewhere earlier, but for example, currently since there is this Etsy database where uh, SEP holders need to declare their uh, SEPs, so you could um, augment it by having um, relevant chapters of the standard specifications identified to which your SEP relates to, or even to provide the claim charts. So um, that would be one easy way out. And um, then, of course, this competence of EU IPO whether they have um, understanding of standards, patents, and, and the t technologies for that uh, essentiality check is another thing. So um, uh, I think this kind of uh, way of um, just providing more information with your declaration would be sufficient. 
if I could yes, just yes, chime in, so, and going back to the questions that I, I was asked and you were mentioning things. And Eustace, you mentioned earlier the, the 2017 communication from the Commission, um, which is, I would say, more aligned with uh, what we're seeing come out of the US, that there was um, a no one-size-fits-all solution uh, there was uh, a real focus on industry-led initiatives, encouraging different forms of licensing, including via pools. Um, we seem to have moved well beyond that, um, we're, with no clear evidence, as I understood your report, to suggest that these are things that should be given up on. Um, and, and, and so that there is the, the concern there. Um, and um, in terms of uh, a forum, uh, there are a variety of solutions uh, that could be done, but part and parcel of this is you mentioned incremental change, Eustace, and that was what the Commission itself looked at. It's what the Parliament and Council looked at following uh, that communication as well in subsequent um, papers. What we don't have here is incremental change. What we have is, is an overhaul of every aspect, some of it with, with more information behind it that, than other bits. But one of, the, one of the key flaws of this process has been that those specific measures were not discussed properly with industry prior to the Commission adopting its proposal. So around essentiality checking, we anticipated essentiality checking because of the discussions that there had been. Nokia put forward uh, a proposal in its response to, to, to consultation on potential route for essentiality checking. What we could not predict was the, the, the rest of it, the friend determination, the aggregate royalty. And because it hasn't been shaped by industry input, it, it doesn't work in practice. And trying to fix it on the fly, as the process is currently asking us to do, is very, very difficult, especially given what's at stake. Eustace, let me come back to you um, to sort of elaborate a bit further on uh, the determination of aggregate royalties. Uh, Colette just mentioned it. So, I mean, do you think this provides transparency? Um, you know, tell us your take on it, I mean, based on the report. Yeah, I think that Colette has <clears throat> mentioned the two aspects or the two different ways a policymaker can try to intervene. I mean, there's trying to provide transparency on the prices or trying to change the prices, trying to uh, act upon how the prices are set. And sure, if you say everybody from now on has to pay 100 euros, then that's very transparent. But I mean, uh, then you have kind of also and predominantly changed the way the prices are set. And so I think that if you really, if your objective is to provide transparency, then I think the Commission could have looked at other proposals that we also discussed in the expert group, for example, uh, proposals that were more aimed at providing more transparency about bilateral licenses that were negotiated and make that information more freely available, allow stakeholders to find ways to work through non-disclosure agreements and this kind of thing. Um, obviously, we haven't made progress based on that, so like these, these, pro these proposals haven't been fleshed out, but I mean, this, I think, was 
at least from, from the start, was a more promising route. Whereas what we have now is, is, is quite squarely in the realm of setting prices, like fixing prices, which of course from that point on is, provides transparency, but I think that transparency is kind of a secondary goal. I mean, the primary goal is to, to arrive at prices that are economically appropriate. I mean, it's very important that we have prices that at the same time provide innovation incentives, and, at the other, and on the other hand, also allow implementers to profitably implement these standards. And that's not as straightforward. And having a very opaque process that it's very difficult to predict how it will work, uh, set one price for the entire industry, uh, entails at least a clear risk that at least for some industry participants, these prices would not be appropriate. And then you have greater transparency at the cost of um, messing with the market-based price determination for licenses. We've got a lot of questions coming in and we're already nearly out of time, so I'm going to try and take a few of them quite quickly. Uh, first off, uh, for you, Eustace, uh, where can someone find out more information about the pilot? Um, is there anywhere you can direct our audience member to to find out more? Sure, I mean, the pilot is... Uh, I, I wasn't involved in the pilot, uh, but uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's online. Uh, the Commission publishes it on, on the website. It's... I think the authors also publish it independently on SSR, and I, I don't have the exact link on the top of my head, but okay. I can, people can find that. Well, thank you. Hopefully, uh, that's for uh, Julia online. I hope you'll be able to find it. Um, a question I think, Chris, you might be able to, to respond to. Uh, Ryan is saying that they are very pleased um, with the, uh, the US PTO uh, looking out for the little guys. Um, but there is a question here regarding whether the regulation, the U, the the European Commission proposed regulation would affect all SEP licensors equally, irrespective of the location of their R&D. Would it then affect US and Chinese innovation, or would it affect European innovation differently? I think the question is, why is it only European innovation we're focusing on today? Uh, yeah, no, I think that uh, goes to sort of the territoriality uh, within which patent rights have traditionally operated, right? So they're, they're territorial rights. If you get a patent in the U.S., you have that same invention in Europe or China. You need to go and, and file for your uh, patent rights in each of those jurisdictions, which you seek protection over. And so to the extent that the EU SEP proposal would focus solely on those patents that exist within the EU uh, regulatory framework, I think that is legally correct that they only have the jurisdiction and authority to do so. We've seen developments uh, around the world in, in which uh, judiciaries have decided to sort of not pass judgment on foreign patents, but maybe bundle the value of all of the global portfolio of patents together in, in one determination. And so um, on the one side, maybe that is efficient. On the other, that if you're only seeking a license to the territorial um, set of patents for a particular country, then that would be viewed as inappropriate. So I think the, the impacts on innovation around the world are, are very real in the extent that you're a foreign company doing business in Europe, then this, this regulation will necessarily affect your ability to enforce your rights within Europe. Um, but you may have options to enforce in other places around the world. So I hope that helps shed some light on that. Thank you, Chris. Um, I should also say that we have put the link to that pilot study uh, in the chat for those following online. Um, some, some comments as well coming in. Uh, uh, Joachim Henkel from TUM says that the regulation says nothing about the level of aggregate royalty. It just demands that it's public. Um, and then we have a question coming in 
from Sebastian Schaffer of Volkswagen Group. Um, Colette, I think probably directed towards you. Um, there could be increased bureaucratic costs due to the EU IPO. On the other hand, wouldn't the SEP regulation with the mandatory FRAN determination contribute to reducing the costs of legal disputes? Well, I think that assumes that it's going to resolve uh, any issues between the parties. And that is not a foregone conclusion. The FRAN determination process acts as a bar to accessing courts in Europe. You, it's a mandatory process you must go through before you access the courts. The outcome is non-binding. So you could envisage going through this process. They say it's nine months. I think that's very ambitious to go through this process in that time period. And then still not have a resolution. But then you would have to litigate. But where would that litigation be? Because whilst it bars access to the courts in Europe, it doesn't bar access to courts elsewhere. And so what I envisage would happen is that these disputes would simply shift to other jurisdictions. UK may have a Brexit dividend out of this, could shift to Asia. We're seeing a lot more activity in courts in China and in India. But the interesting thing is then the European courts or the courts in the European member states and the new UPC won't be the courts that are issuing decisions. And it's interesting because Chris mentioned earlier the Huawei ZTE judgment. And, you know, that's someone from the US mentioning a, a decision of the Court of Justice of the European Union. And I hear that decision cited to me when I speak to people in India, in China, in the US. The courts in Europe have played a, a really key role in addressing aspects of this de debate coming up with a negotiation framework, and they're going to be cut out of this process. And to be honest, the costs of, uh, are not going to be saved. I, I don't see that litigation will stop. But there's also this real focus on litigation around this regulation. You just, your study showed that litigation is actually on the decline. Um, and I would say that that's also Nokia's experience. You know, over the past five, six years, we have concluded 250 licensing deals. Only 2% of those required any form of litigation. And so, you know, there does seem to be, be a thought there. Um, Sonia, I uh, haven't heard from you in a while and we're running out of time, so I did want to get your thoughts on all of the things we've been talking about, you know, the, the SCP register, essentiality checks, but also aggregate royalty determinations, FRAN determinations. We've kind of covered most of it, but give us your perspective. The perspective would take two hours, but I will just <laughs> summarise in 30 seconds. Um, coming back to the litigation, SMEs are not under a threat of massive... Uh, SCP litigations. There's no litigation threat to SMEs, really. And now UPC in Europe is a great uh, tool for SMEs to have more cost-effective litigation. But now it seems that Europe is trying to regulate itself out of the market of SCPs. This is not helpful and, and we shouldn't uh, create now a new bureaucratic system that actually takes away the benefits of the UPC. 
and and maybe even make the SMEs pay more now that with this this new system. Uh, finally, a question, Chris, for you. Um, is there a national security element to SEP policy? Great question. Thank you. I think we've definitely seen the national security uh, lens raised when we, we think about standards, uh, especially as those standards sort of enable critical functions of a, a nation state. So to the extent that um, we had um, any next generation communication network, right, that would necessarily impact the functioning of uh, communications for a country. And so to the extent that these things uh, are very real, I think that's that's one angle to look at national security. Another is just general industrial policy, right? So to the extent that these uh, revenues are uh, responsible for a country to really sustain their R&D framework, then I think that's also a very important consideration when you think about national security. Thank you very much, Chris. Um, thank you all for so many questions. Um, I'm afraid we didn't get to all of them, but we are out of time. So just to close, I will invite Eva of our opening speakers, Uwe or Fulkart, if you would like to give a quick reaction to anything you've heard on the panel. <laughs> we wait with bated breath, <laughs> or perhaps we'll save it for the networking afterwards. No, I, I think uh, obviously it's a, a topic which uh, is, is, is hot and uh, the, the industry um, needs a framework which really en enables innovation. And, and Europe um, really needs to get everything together and uh, be also innovative in the framework uh, for this to, to enable technology in, in innovation. And there is work to be done, and it looks like not everything which is being proposed is really helping uh, the European industry to be at the forefront uh, of the technology. And we have seen a few technology areas where I would say we, we missed the boat, and we should not uh, add to this list uh, more technology areas. Uwe, thank you. Volkart, anything from you or your... Well, uh, yes, what, what we heard from the panel indeed uh, is in line with the, 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 the stance taken by, by IARTO that the present proposal is uh, imbalanced and immature uh, and the approach taken by the Commission is too heavy-handed. Well, thank you. We've, uh, we've talked a lot. I'm sure there's a lot more still to be said. Um, it is, as we know, just a proposal at this point. We will see what happens. Uh, we watch closely here at Euractive. And also we know that the uh, sponsors today, Nokia, have uh, really set the agenda for what they want to talk about in the coming weeks and months. But thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for all your questions and have a great day.